For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own compatriots as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They displease God and oppose everyone by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Thus they have constantly been filling up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has overtaken them at last. It's that last part, especially on our side of the Shoah, that causes at least a pause. I, I can guarantee this section of 1 Thessalonians is not in our lectionary. And I understand that on the one hand. On the other hand, not to address a text like this, I think, is a real disservice because um, it, it is one of the hard texts, and yet, despite some attempts to see this as a later interpolation into the letter, I, I think it, the evidence is that this is what Paul wrote. So what does he mean by it? And how do we understand this in Paul's own time, and then how might we think about it in our own, in our day? Um, let me point out first that Paul does this Again, in the context of thanking God for God's work among them, um, Paul's ministry is God's message delivered by someone appointed by God, um, someone continually under God's watchful eye. And um, if you take that claim seriously, as Paul does, then opposition to the message is not first and foremost opposition to the messenger, but to the one who sent him. So when he says they displease God, Paul is speaking um, as one convinced that God has given good news that is to be shared not only within Israel, but with the Gentiles as well. And so their opposition to God, their displeasing God, the opposite of Paul who seeks not to please people but to please God, is um, quite narrowly contextualized here. It's not a comment about all Jews in Paul's day, let alone all Jews of all time, but it specifically has in view um, their adversarial relationship to Paul and other uh, Jewish evangelists like Silas and Timothy who are speaking to the Gentiles now. Um, notice also he says in verse 13 that it is God's word, it's not a human word, and it's a word that is active, that is at work in you believers. The existence of the church in Thessalonica is itself confirmation that, in fact, the gospel is the power of God to save the Jew first and also the Greek, as Paul says in Romans. And so, again, Paul has not only a personal sense of calling, but he's got the evidence of this community's persistence, its origin and its persistence through the power of God. Um, to convince him that opposition to this work is opposition to what God is up to in the world. Another evidence that God is at work is in verse 14, where again, the Thessalonians are commended for being imitators. Imitators in chapter 1 of us and of the Lord in enduring through persecution, now in imitators of Jews who have received the good news. The churches of God in Christ Jesus, that are in Judea. Um, it shouldn't go without noting that the people that are the models for the Thessalonians are Jewish believers in the Messiah, in God's action in raising Jesus from the dead. 
And the parallel is that the Thessalonians are receiving from, not from Jews in their town, but from their own fellow family members, associates, kinspeople, the same kind of treatment that the Jewish believers in Jesus have received. So Paul is not saying the Jews are persecuting you. He's saying you are receiving from your Gentile neighbors the same kind of ostracism and insult and pressure that the churches of God in Judea have been experiencing all this time. Finally, um, it's important to see that, that Paul's language in verses 15 and 16 is part of a, a much more extensive pattern of speech, pattern of thinking that's found in Israel's scriptures themselves. The prophets who speak on behalf of God to Israel as members of the people of Israel, lamenting the hard-heartedness and waywardness of their own people, use this language warning of God's wrath, warning of um, the disaster to befall those who oppose God, and pleading for a churn, a change of heart. Um, when Paul addresses this topic some years later, not that many years later, in the letter to the Romans, uh, it's significant that he depicts himself in the guise of Moses, interceding on the mountain for his kinspeople. He says, I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinspeople. Paul is not throwing bombs from outside. He is carrying on a passionate critique from within. And the specific complaint is that they are hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles might be saved. This appears to be the offense of Paul in the eyes of his own kinspeople is proclaiming to Gentiles a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, a way that, is, that, that makes no distinction between Jew and Greek, that necessarily relativizes the place of the good gift of Torah and Torah obedience that elevates Christ to a place that heretofore has been occupied only by God and God's law. It's a, there's, there are deeply faithful reasons for having questions about this good news. And, um, and yet, Paul is absolutely convinced, committed 100% to being a messenger of this good news. He's seen in his own life what it is like to be a persecutor who is grabbed by God and changed from an enemy into a beloved child and a messenger and a participant in the life of Christ. Acts may help here in giving us some background to Paul's mission, even if Luke has somewhat stylized his account of Paul's mission. Um, it seems important that, uh, and in Acts 17 we saw yesterday, that as Paul begins to attract Gentile followers to this message, it creates some real conflict with religious leaders in the very towns where Paul is. Um, Luke attributes it to jealousy. You're taking our sheep in a way. You're stealing our sheep. Uh, I think given the charges brought before the magistrates, there may be another reason as well. Um, the 
Paul and his band are accused of proclaiming another king. This is sedition. This is dangerous. And if Paul is associated with the synagogue, and he's preaching a Jewish king, a Jewish Messiah, that's going to bring some pretty unwanted attention on the synagogue itself. And so there's a, a, there are a lot of reasons why the leaders of the synagogue would want to make clear that Paul is not one of us, to either get him to be quiet or to push him out, because what he has to say has ramifications for the well-being of the community for which they are responsible. Um, that Paul persists stubbornly is attested by the fact that in 2 Corinthians, he reflects on his sufferings, his hardships as a minister of the gospel, and he mentions five times, I received the 40 lashes minus one. Jews were not going around Greek cities beating people. The only people subject to that discipline were people who belonged to that community. And so Paul, as a member of the community, was subject to this discipline because he didn't neglect proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, even in those situations. And apparently he didn't leave until he was forced out, shamefully and publicly and painfully. Um, so there's definitely a lot of emotion here. Paul's ministry is being hindered. He had to leave Thessalonica, according to the account in Acts, because of opposition of some of his Judean countrymen. His ability to proclaim this saving message to Gentiles as being frustrated by members of his own people. And uh, so he's angry about it, and he uses hard words. And he speaks of it, again, in prophetic terms. They are filling up the measure of their sins. God is not going to allow this to go on forever. They are, in fact, keeping up wrath for themselves, judgment for themselves. And he says God's wrath has overtaken them perhaps at last or completely. It's a bit difficult to know how to translate that phrase. There is um, one interesting parallel in a, in a text from the Second Temple period. Um, these are, this text is known as the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, kind of the last words and testaments of the, the twelve sons of Jacob. And it's a text that has passed through Christian hands, so there's some some possibilities that there is Christian influence in the form that has come down to us. Um, but I think here in this passage, it's, it's probably really a parallel rather than someone borrowing Paul's language. Um, Levi, the priest, um, famous in the book of Genesis for being um, cursed by his father when Jacob blesses all of the sons, because um, Levi and his brother Simeon um, responded to the rape of their sister by slaughtering not just the person who had done it, but the entire village, the entire city of the Shechemites. And, uh, and this scares Jacob. <laughs> he moves out of town. He's like, we're going to be in trouble. We're too small for this. Um, but Levi defends himself now as an old man looking back. And his justification is that I saw, he says, that the sentence of God was for evil upon Shechem. That is, the king of Shechem and all of his people. And we get some more information in many of these Second Temple texts than we actually get in the biblical text. Because they sought to do to Sarah and Rebekah as they had done to Dinah, our sister, but the Lord prevented them. So Levi knew that there, this was just the beginning of a pattern. In fact, they persecuted Abraham, our father, when he was a stranger. 
And they vexed his flocks when they were big with young. And Eblion, who was born in his house, they most shamefully handled. I'm not sure who that is. I, don't, I think that's uh, a little added information as well. Moreover, they, did, they acted this way to all strangers, taking away their wives by force and expelling them from their country. And then he says, but the wrath of the Lord came upon them at last, or to the uttermost. It's exactly the same phrase Paul is using. There's woodpeckers out there? Yeah. Wow. All right. Great. Uh, we should get in rhythm with one another, but that's all right. What's that? Ornery goats. Ornery goats dancing on the roof. <laughs> that's great. All right. Um, so, uh, another Second Temple Jewish work that looks at the destruction of a people as the pronouncing of God's judgment. That, it's sort of anybody's guess whether Paul saw some event in his own day as speaking of that judgment um, or whether he anticipated it. Um, in an interesting twist, um, rabbinic thought sees judgment as, in fact, a means of atonement for sin so that um, God punishes God's own people quickly so that they don't suffer ultimate wrath. Um, I think Paul here actually has a picture, um, just as the idolaters who are persecuting the Thessalonians will be judged, so will his own contemporaries. Um, again, I think for us to situate this in, um, Paul, in the context of Paul's mission, but then also to see Paul in a, a less angry and less worked up state, sometime later reflecting to the Romans about how his earnest desire, his prayer, is for the salvation of his kinspeople. And uh, his conviction that I think he comes to wrestling with Scripture, um, that God in fact has hardened part of Israel for the sake of the Gentiles, and that in the end God will mercifully embrace his recalcitrant people as well as they do not remain ultimately in unbelief, um, but embrace what God has done for them in Christ. That's, a, that's another topic for another time. Um, I think um, the best that Christians probably have to say on the topic of the ongoing election and the destiny of Israel apart from the church um, is found in Romans 9 to 11. Um, but I don't want to minimize that that's still a difficult passage. And, um, but thinking well about this, I think, is, um, is important, especially um, in light of the events of our last century and, unfortunately, um, signs of a resurgent anti-Semitism in our own country as well as other places around the world. Um, verse 17, Paul shifts the attention away from polemic back to thanksgiving. He's spoken about them. Now he reminds them of how all these events have affected, the recent events have affected himself. As for us, brothers and sisters, for a short time we were made orphans by being separated from you in person, not in heart. And so we longed with great eagerness to see you face to face, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, wanted to come again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? Yes, you are our glory and joy. 
Therefore, when we decided we could bear it no longer, we decided to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker with God, in proclaiming the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith, so that no one would be shaken by these persecutions. Indeed, you yourselves know that this is what we are destined for. In fact, when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer persecutions. And so it turned out, as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor had been in vain. Paul is retelling this story. Um, Timothy has probably given them the substance of this already. Because as we'll find out, Paul sent Timothy. Timothy has now returned with a report. Why does he go over it again in this letter? Well, one of the functions of, of this report is, again, to, to strengthen the bonds between Paul and his audience, to emphasize that the deep love that he showed them, the care that he had for them when he was with them has only continued, in fact, has perhaps intensified being apart from one another. Um, Again, Malherby does a, a good job in his commentary showing that, that the language Paul uses here is quite conventional for letters. It's, it's amazing given the, um, the distances that people had to travel in the ancient world and the, and the few options for travel, foot, by animal, by ship, um, that people sent short notes often. We have a lot of these that have um, been preserved for us in, uh, in Egypt in the papyri, oftentimes the notes say nothing other than, I'm thinking of you, I hope you're thinking of me, I miss you, I pray for you, I hope you're well, and write me when you get a chance. Um, there's a beautiful letter that uh, was, has been published many, many times in collections. It comes from um, uh, an Egyptian soldier who's been recruited into the Roman army, and he, he writes a note back to his father. And one of the things he says, besides I'm well, and this is the new name they've given me, and this is where I'm being stationed. He says, please write me, first of all, about your welfare, then about that of my siblings. He says, I, I really want a letter from you. I want something from your hand so that I can honor you. Ah, it's just, it's beautiful. He says, because you raised me well. It's, it's a really wonderful little letter. But he wants something from his father a tangible reminder of their bond, that he can remember his dad by seeing this letter. And um, apparently he sends back a little portrait that he's had sketched uh, for himself. And um, this same letter was found bundled with another one that's written many years later, back to the family, now back to a sister, um, where there's again just news about, I have a child, this is his birthday, how are you doing? Um, pretty mundane things. Letters that would have been carried by a traveler going back to that town. Um, but there are hundreds of these. And this desire for a connection. Um, Paul, with everything else he has to do in this letter, he spends a lot of his time just talking about how much he loves them and how much he misses them. And this language almost, to me, seems over the top. I wouldn't write this way, probably, but I long for you. I've been orphaned from you. Um, I, day and night, I constantly am praying that I could see your face again. I've wanted to come many times. Satan is blocking our, my way. Uh, I couldn't stand any longer not knowing about you, so I finally sent Timothy. Um, you know, how would you feel 
sitting in that congregation hearing this letter from Paul. Like, wow, okay. Uh, he loves us. Man, we love him too. Um, this idea of Paul as an orphan, I think, is, um, is just a stunning turn of speech. He's spoken of himself as, a, as the nursemaid, as the mother, as the father. I can get that. But here's the pastor of the conversation saying, man, I feel like an orphan without you. That the level of vulnerability that he's willing to, uh, to claim for himself. Certainly wanting to evoke in them um, a corresponding sense of love. He's also, I think, showing his empathy for them. Um, I read yesterday the prayer of Aseneth, who speaks of herself as an orphan, as one who has fled for refuge to the true God and now without family. Many of those converts are now without mother and father and brothers and cousins. Paul understands what that feels like, he's suggesting. Abraham Malherby says, quote, Paul does not write here as an authoritative and demanding apostle, but as someone who knows what it means to be in the orphan state in which his readers find themselves. Paul is um, one who shares in the very troubles that the Thessalonians share. This is a theme that comes up in many of Paul's letters. He understands as, as, as different as the settings and perhaps even the causes for their suffering, he sees himself and his converts involved in the same great contest, a contest of hardships. Certainly um, physical hardships, but also emotional and mental hardships. And he reminds them here that even when he was with them, he warned them that this would be their lot, that part of responding to the good news and waiting for the Savior from heaven and living in keeping with the kingdom of God will be hardship because this is a way out of step with the powers that rule this world. It's to put oneself in the crosshairs for the tempter. It's to set oneself up in opposition to those who rule this age. And so Paul, again, adopts a, a form of pastoral care in his day. Um, we have these treatises on consolation. Uh, maybe in college somewhere you read a, a, a late antique treatise by Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy. But these consolations, um, it's, a, it's a, a form of writing that goes well back into um, the, the, before the Common Era. We have consolations from Cicero and Seneca. There's a beautiful letter of consolation that Plutarch, the philosopher, writes to his wife. He's away from home and he's learned that their two-year-old daughter has died and he writes a, just a tender letter to his wife. Um, but as, as you might imagine, if you browse in the, in the bookstore, in the card shop, sympathy cards tend to have themes, tropes that they use. Um, there are these from the ancient world too. And, and one of the standard ways of, of dealing with loss was to help prepare people ahead of time. We're going to suffer loss. That's our lot as human beings. What you are suffering is what people are suffering uh, all over the world. Uh, you can bear up under it. Again, though, Mel Herbie points out that Paul has a distinctive um, take on this Greek philosophical trope because it's not that fate is causing their hardships, but under the providential care of God their Father, they will experience hardship. And yet God 
He's not surprised, and God does not abandon them in that. Paul refers to a contest, and he uses this word agon. We get agony from it. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a pretty wide-ranging word. It can be used of a, of a military engagement. Um, it can be used of the philosophical life. It can also be, it's also regularly used of athletic context, contests. So I, I can't remember, it was ABC Sports when I was young. They, they always had the, the thrill of victory, the agony of deceit, defeat, deceit. <laughs> wow, that was a Freudian slip. Okay. Um, the agony of defeat, the poor guy going off the ski, the ski jump. Oh, man, yeah. Um, where was I going with that? Now I don't know. Oh, no, but um, Paul often uses athletic imagery. I think this is a really important thing, especially for the sports lovers among us, to just remind our con congregations that Paul also probably had his favorite sports teams, that it's okay to, uh, to, to use one Sabbath to watch uh, playoffs and... Um, as long as you don't root for the Tar Heels, it's great to be uh, interested in NCAA basketball and, and so on. Um, but here Paul's image is of a race or an athletic contest in which he seeks the victor's crown, the award. And this also shows up in philosophy as well. I'm getting sort of sounding like a broken record here. But, uh, you know... The, the, the Olympic victors got a, a, a wreath of celery or pine or something that would easily fade. Um, the Jewish and Greek moralists love to say, you know, we work for an imperishable crown. In fact, we've got Christian texts that say that as well. Not for the crown that perishes, but for an imperishable one. What's really neat here and striking and um, challenges me again and again as I think about how do I look at the people I'm called to serve, with whom I'm called to share life in Christ, he says, what is this crown for which I run and labor? What's well, you? Verse 19, what is our hope, our joy, our crown in which we will boast and take great pleasure before our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? You are our glory and our joy. You are our crown. Uh, I, Paul envisions, I think, the, the glad reunion at the throne of Christ um, when he sees the people that he has shared life with, to whom he has brought the gospel, for whom he has prayed and, and suffered, uh, with whom he has wept, with whom he has rejoiced, that they are there is his reward. That they are there is what he will boast in before the Lord Jesus, um, take glory in. This um, long view is... Um, Paul uses the, word, the, the language of contest, I think, advisedly because for him it is possible that things could go amiss. He worries that he might have ended up laboring in vain should their faith not endure. He worries that the tempter might have tempted them. Um, as hard on the one side as Paul emphasizes God's continual working in the community and God's prior accompanying, following grace it is still the case that things can go wrong. And so one finishes the race by finishing it. One shows faith by enduring to the end. One realizes hope by being steadfast until hope becomes sight. 
what has spawned this letter finally comes fully into view in verse 6. Timothy has just now come to us from you. So Paul has sent Timothy, gone on to Corinth, is waiting weeks for Timothy to return. There's probably no news that can travel any faster than Timothy coming back with his report. And what has Timothy done? He's brought to us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us also that you always remember us kindly and long to see us just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live if you continue to stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Um, Paul just about breaks into song at this point. Um, notice the echoes of the very beginning of the letter, their faith and their love. Um, Labor is missing here. It shows up elsewhere in the letter. Um, I haven't said much about faith. I mean, Pauline scholars have been uh, debating phrases like the faith of Christ now for a couple of decades. Um, but faith is one of those words that I, I fear we think we know what it means and then are, are, are challenged and also um, educated by looking more deeply into what it means. Um, the Greek word for faith um, can range anywhere from an intellectual assent to something to uh, a commitment of one's entire life. So the range of translation equivalents that you'll get are include faith, trust, faithfulness, loyalty. Um, it's probably not the case that one word carries all of that in every occurrence. But in this letter, notice what faith is conjoined with over and over again. It's a pattern of life. It's a commitment uh, to people, to God. Um, loyalty wouldn't be a bad translation in some of these instances, or at least trust. Um, this is not just an idea, but it's a controlling passion of one's life. And that kind of loyalty can be given and it can be rescinded. And Paul rejoices because their loyalty to God, their trust in God, um, displayed through their love for one another, for God, for Paul, uh, has remained firm. And so he, uh, he rejoices that they, uh, NRSV here has, remember us kindly. Um, it's actually, you have a good memory of us. And this is my last quote from Abraham Malherby today, um, but I think it's an illuminating parallel as well, that, um, that in these moral philosophers you find... Uh, a pattern where someone is an example who is then imitated, but imitating that example in turn requires constant remembrance. When that person is no longer there, we call them to mind. We call their pattern of life to mind. In part, Paul has written chapter 2 to recall his pattern of life to their minds. And I'll just read this a uh, little bit lengthy excerpt from um, a, a work by Lucian, who is another first, second century philosopher, actually writes some really biting satire about Christians. And uh, so he's no fan of Christians, and he's funny. And um, yeah, if you want to see how outsiders could make fun of this community and their, um, 
their craziness than, than his, uh, his work on the passing of Peregrinus is, um, is a classic. Um, in fact, the, just, this is not completely off the point, Peregrinus is, for Lucian, uh, one, of the one of the classic false philosophers, somebody who's only in it for personal gain. And for a period of his career, he passes himself off as a Christian teacher. And one of the things Lucian makes fun of is how when Peregrinus is thrown into prison for preaching about Jesus, the Christian community just smothers him with love and care. Some of them bribe the guards so they can spend the night in the prison with Peregrinus. They bring him food, they bring him clothing, they bring him money. Uh, and for Lucian, it's, look at these suckers, they're taken in by this guy. Um, but it's actually a really powerful witness to the kind of care, the kind of family that the early Christians um, built and maintained among themselves. It's also, uh, if you take Lucian's reading of Peregrinus at face value, it's also just the kind of person that Paul is concerned to distinguish himself from, someone who profits from the gospel. But here, Lucian is recalling, uh, or at least the voice in this dialogue, is recalling his uh, time with a platonic teacher named Nigrinus. And um, this guy has actually come back and his, the, the dialogue is set up that his friend says, boy, since you got back from your trip, you don't associate with us anymore. You seem so arrogant and high-minded. What, what's, what's the deal? And this guy is just positively gushing. He's saying, oh, you won't believe what's happened to me. I was blind and now I see. I was foolish and now I've found the way. And so the friend wants to know. He asks some questions. Tell me about it. And so he recalls this interview dialogue with Negrinus. Um, but in the course of introducing it, he says, I take pleasure in calling my teacher's words to mind frequently. And I've already made it a regular exercise, a spiritual discipline. Even if nobody happens to be at hand, I repeat his words to myself two or three times a day, just the same. I am in the same case with lovers. In the absence of the objects of their fancy, they think over their actions and their words, and by dallying with these, beguile their love sickness into the belief that they have their sweethearts nearby. In fact, sometimes they even imagine they are chatting with their sweethearts and are as pleased with what they formerly heard as if it were just being said now. And by applying their minds to the memory of the past, they give themselves no time to be annoyed by the present absence of the loved one. So I, too, in the absence of my mistress' philosophy, get no little comfort out of gathering together the words that I then heard and turning them over to myself. In short, I fix my gaze on that man as if he were a lighthouse and I were adrift at sea in the dead of night, fancying him by me whenever I do anything and always hearing him repeat his former words. Sometimes, especially when I put pressure on my soul, his face appears to me and the sound of his voice abides in my ears." Truly, as the comedian says, he left a sting implanted in his hearers. Well, remembering the teacher, who knows if the Thessalonians waxed quite so eloquently about Paul, but he's encouraged not just that they think that he's a nice guy, but that they remember his pattern of life. And in remembering it, seek to be faithful imitators. Um, I try to imagine what the church in Thessalonica might have had by way of text. It's not terribly common in the ancient world to be able to read and write, um, but texts are a feature of early Christian life, about as early as we can see. Um, perhaps they had some scriptures. It's quite unlikely they would have had a, a complete 
uh, set of scrolls, um, or maybe even known what to do with them, but perhaps they had a, a psalm text, or perhaps they had some stories that they learned by heart about Jesus, perhaps even had some sayings of Jesus written down for them. Perhaps most of it was, was oral memory. They would be repeating to themselves. They would be retelling the stories. They would be recalling Paul's preaching and reenacting it, re-preaching it to one another. Um, Paul is, is relying heavily on their memory of his teaching and on the kind of reinforcement that someone Timothy can provide. Um, and so he rejoices that they continue to remember him, that they continue to stand firm. And again, just um, amazingly uh, hyperbolic language. Now we live. Paul is uh, at the uttermost end of his rope when he sends Timothy, and now it's as if he has new life. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? I'm glad to have this letter and Philippians because the Paul who writes Galatians and the Paul who writes First and Second Corinthians doesn't always have it so, I won't say easy, but there isn't always such a happy relationship. Um, and some of my students experience Paul as, as simply a shrill and difficult person. Here you get to see the heart of a person who's pouring his very life into people. This also, I think, is, is deeply illuminating of 2 Corinthians, where Paul is seeking reconciliation with this community. And he uses a, a similar m phrase here. He says, you are in our hearts to live together and to die together. You are so dear to me that your welfare is worth my spending and being spent for you. And uh, we're together in life or in death. Again, a, a sentiment that friends express to one another in letters that we have, you know, by chance, that have come down to us from the Greco-Roman world. For Paul, the difference is we live together because Christ lives in us and we live in Christ. And our death together is, in fact, entrance into the very real life that has been granted to us. Paul's final prayer here um, very neatly wraps up the previous section and also introduces two themes that will become the focus in the next couple chapters and our next couple sessions together. It's a, a prayer of benediction. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Again, just reinforcing that relationship. One God and Father of us all, one Lord Jesus Christ binds us together. And so may God now direct our way to you. We've been prevented so far. We've been hindered. I want to see you face to face. May God make that happen. And in my absence as well as in my eventual presence, verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. Um, marvelous prayer that both acknowledges and thanks God for what's going on and, and encourages them to keep doing it, to keep growing in love for one another. One hint of what's to come is the addition for one another and for all. Well, who are those all? Perhaps other believers in Macedonia and Achaia and Judea. Perhaps, though, love for their fellow citizens who are causing them such distress. May God make that love for enemy increase as well.
Paul will later speak about doing good to those who are outside and yet who are not, therefore, to be excluded from our concern. And then verse 13, may God so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And what holiness means is going to be the next topic of conversation. So I'll save that. Let me just point out once more that Paul is framing the Thessalonians' life together in terms of this cosmic story. Our God and Father, the one who has given us life and new life in Christ, is sending his Son from heaven to deliver us, to call us into God's reign. And the Lord Jesus will come with all of his holy ones, including now you in Thessalonica, who because of your trust in Jesus Christ belong to the household of God, and so by his grace are also called saints. Well, um, six or seven minutes for questions, feedback. Let me encourage you to just keep reading First Thessalonians. Please, uh, and we'll, we'll use the mic again. Thanks. Oh, back, back in the middle. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. What ways is um, Is it on? This morning. Oh, great. Thank you. And has to do with good and evil. And in 2.16, he talks about, well, some of this evil is coming from God, that uh, the wrath of God has come. Then in 2.18, he talks about, no, it's, it's from Satan. Uh, Satan stopped us from coming to visit you. And then later on in the third chapter, it's, no, the tempter does it. The tempter might have tempted you. And I'm wondering, what is Paul's perception in terms of evil, the source of it, the impact and purpose of it, if it has any? Um, how, does, how do we put that together? That's a great question. Unfortunately, I can, I can answer that in about 10 seconds. <laughs> oh, it's huge. Sorry. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, well, so a couple comments, and these are, these are questions as well, I suppose, to consider. Um, I'm not sure, I, I would tend to identify Satan and the tempter um, with one another, but as far as I know, the tempter is, this is a unique phrase in Paul, and I, you know, it could be, it could be Satan or it could be some allied evil force. Um, but Paul certainly thinks of evil as having a suprahuman dimension, um, that there are anti-God powers, as Lou Martin would put it, um, who influence and um, interact with the human world, who frustrate Paul's ministry. He famously talks about um, 
the opposition of Satan to his ministry in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about having a, a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan. Um, certainly for Paul, it's, never, it's not a power on par with God. And in fact, um, in this case, this thorn, this messenger of Satan to torment Paul is actually God's tool for showing God's power through Paul's own weakness. Um, but he does, uh, in 1 Corinthians, identifies the power behind the idols of the Gentiles with demonic forces. Um, this kind of language, by the way, would be deeply offensive to the Thessalonians. <laughs> you know, your gods are actually really evil spirits. Because the Greek world also knows of malevolent spiritual forces as well um, and seeks to appease those. Um, I think Paul's probably, since he only gives us snatches of this, probably has to be understood in a, on the broader canvas of Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic theology, which doesn't necessarily have sort of one format, but that does see a, a, a cosmic uh, conflict between God and opponents of God. It's not a, a hard dualism in that the origin of evil remains mysteriously subordinate to God's good plan for the world. Um, but, um, you know, if you, if you read the New Testament compared to the Old Testament, you suddenly find angels and demons and uh, all over the place. Um, and as, as I say, Jewish apocalyptic, but this, this is a, a feature as well of Hellenistic and Roman um, philosophical speculation. So Plutarch, I've quoted a few times, has a pretty elaborate cosmology in which the sublunar area uh, of the cosmos is inhabited by mostly malevolent forces. Um, so Paul doesn't give us a, a, you know, a theory of the origins of evil. Um, the closest he comes, I think, unless I'm forgetting a text, is in, in Romans 5, where he talks about sin entering the world through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, and death through sin. But that seems to presuppose that sin already exists in some way. Um, so I think uh, I wouldn't know how to answer that in a Pauline key any further. Um, the other question I have is whether the wrath of God is understood by Paul to be an evil. That is, that, that God's wrath, I mean, certainly the, the results of that wrath are experienced as, as bad things. Um, I think for Paul, God's wrath is, is an aspect of God's judgment, which is part of God being just and right. And um, it's, a, it's a theme that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in modern scholarship, because I think <laughs> scholars like modern theologians and modern pastors, um, we're sort of at a loss for how to talk about wrath in a way that um, seems both faithful to the biblical witness in its entirety and also is in some way not just completely uh, unintelligible or off-putting to our contemporaries. Um, and so I struggle with that as well. Um, but I, I th here's where, uh, Mir I mentioned Miroslav Wolf's, uh, Wolf's book, uh, Exclusion and Embrace, yesterday. Um, he's writing as a Croatian believer in the wake of the ethnic cleansing, the, the wars in, um, in the Balkans, as one who himself has suffered uh, the loss of family members, the loss of property, exile, and he's able to speak to the call for justice um, in a way that I can't as a pretty comfortable, well-off American Christian. And I, 
I think he, he offers a warning that some of the problems that I might have with speaking about justice, um, and I might think myself very sophisticated, actually has more to do with the fact that I'm not struggling with evil at the level that so many of our brothers and sisters are. Um, the real miracle of um, um, you know, forgiveness in the wake of the bombings at the church, uh, churches in Egypt the miracle of forgiveness is not apart from the cry for justice. It's, um, it's not that death is a good thing <laughs> or that the slaughter of innocence is somehow God's will. In seeking forgiveness for our enemies, we're acknowledging that, in fact, justly, there would be um, recompense for that. So, maybe time for one more. Please. Uh, the verse about the Jews killing Jesus. Good proof text for anti-Semites. And I'm wondering a couple of things. Why Paul didn't also implicate the Romans? And if mm. his idea of the Jews 2,000 years ago is different from our idea. I'm thinking of <laughs> Dale Bruner and others writing on the Gospel of John and saying it should be translated Judeans, mm -hmm. a geographical uh, identification rather than a massive religious identification. Could you speak to that? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, elsewhere, Paul does talk about the rulers of this age crucifying the Lord of glory, um, which are perhaps cosmic rulers, but perhaps more directly, the Roman officials responsible for Jesus' death. I, I think the sharp polemic against the Jews here is part of that Killer, the killers of the prophets theme. There's, we were talking yesterday a little bit about the possibility of, of, of at least getting at what some of the oral and perhaps written tradition is that connects Paul with the earliest church. This is very similar to the, the lament in Matthew and Luke that Jesus makes about Jerusalem as kill, the one who stones, kills the prophets or the vineyard parable um, or even the, the very harsh words in Matthew 23 about the, the scribes and the Pharisees. So I think to this trope about the Israel as killing those sent to it, Jesus is added to that as he is in the Gospels. And I think that's why you don't hear anything here about Greeks and Romans and others. Um, but it's, um, it's certainly not all Paul has to say about the subject. And I think you're exactly right. It's a proof text in the worst sense of the word for um, anti-Semitism. And I, and I wish I could say that Christian history wasn't littered with people using the charge of Christ killers to justify persecuting Jews, but we all know that's, that's actually happened over and over again. Um, the second thing is, who were the Jews? And yeah, this is, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger puzzle in the Gospel of John. Um, Al was talking with me about that at the break um, and has some interesting ideas about it if you want to follow up with him as well. But um, in the Gospel of John, the Everybody's a Jew, so who are the Jews? And sometimes it's the, it's the Galileans versus the Judeans, but other times everybody's Jews. It's the Jews versus the Samaritans. And, um, and I think there's probably more than one thing going on in the Gospel of John. In some passages, it seems to be pretty clearly the high priests and those in charge, um, the leadership, and boy, criticizing leadership uh, and in very harsh terms is something you find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. Um, in fact, stuff that's 
well beyond what you find in the New Testament. And when they start talking about the priests in charge of the temple in Jerusalem, it gets really nasty um, because they're, they're the opponents of this group. Um, for Matthew, it's particularly the Pharisees, but I think there it's, it's because Jesus is most like this very um, committed, um, scripture-focused, God-intoxicated movement that we call Pharisaism. Um, and they're most upset with Jesus because he's closest to them. Um, because I teach at Princeton and Duke, um, the, the heresy hunters on uh, you know, the evangelical radio, they don't care about what I say because I'm not nearly close enough, but they certainly care about what somebody at Southern Seminary says or Trinity Divinity School. Um, so the Jews may be, in fact, um, the people closest to Paul or to Jesus or to the early Christian community. Um, but in the Gospel of John, sometimes the Jews seem to function as a representative for the world. And that's, where, that's why it gets complicated. There are, there are enough texts in John that give plausibility to the later Christian anti-Semitic tradition. I think they're misreadings, but they're there. And the history of interpretation shows that they can be really easy readings. Um, this is an area, you know, when it comes to preaching, um, so many things demand our attention. But I think figuring out how to preach the Gospels in a way that doesn't dilute the message of conflict. I was just was teaching Luke's Gospel with um, the Westmont students, and from the very beginning, there's division in Israel. This child is appointed for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. Um, without minimizing that, to then not generalize so far so that, as you say, they're not talking about all Jews of every time and every place. Uh, the Jew is not the... Um, you know, the epitome of homo religiosus or whatever's wrong with humanity, um, which is a, another trope that we get even in a theologian as careful as someone like Karl Barth. Um, it's too tempting to set the Jew up as a type. And I think the New Testament doesn't do that. And that's one place where, a, where historical study of the Gospels and their setting can actually help us be more faithful preachers, more faithful to the message that the Gospels themselves have. I noticed in the bookstore, in fact, a book on, with the title Preaching the Gospels Without Blaming the Jews, uh, Allenson and someone else, I can't remember. I've used that in courses. Um, they're not quite the same place I would be theologically when it comes to a Christian theology of Israel, but they have a lot of good uh, material on how to be careful as preachers with the goal of being faithful to the text.